The reading tonight is 12 through 14. We are in the Sermon on the Mount. We are coming nearer to the end of the sermon, quite closer to the end than we are to the beginning. It might even be said rightly that we come tonight in verse 12 to our Lord's summary of the sermon. I am not going to dispute that nor confirm it. I find it difficult to know, but it very well could be. And you'll understand why in a little while. Let us read and then pray. Matthew 7, 12 through 14. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard, that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Let us pray. Our gracious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, grant that you would allow us to hear tonight We don't deserve to hear. We do not pretend that we do. We do not assume capability and ability to hear. We ask, O Lord, we ask that you would be pleased to open our ears, to grant that the word would be received by faith, that we would recognize the voice of the master in the word of God preached, as read. And Lord, we pray that you would bind it upon our hearts, that by it you would enlighten our minds, that you would strengthen our legs, we would rise up and walk in the holiness of faith, laying hold of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and following him wherever he would have us to follow. Oh, Lord, let this be, having heard this word tonight, let this be the most reasonable thing we would like to do on the morrow and on the days that follow the morrow. Let it be a true, willing compulsion of ours because we have heard by the hearing of grace. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Historians tell us that the Roman emperor, Alexander Severus, was no Christian at all. But as a committed idol worshiper, Severus was remarkably friendly with Christians. He even borrowed some features of Christian church government for his own civil government. And this was doubly remarkable because this was still a 100 years before Emperor Constantine would make the Christian faith the state religion of the empire. Severus, who ruled the Roman Empire from 2022, or excuse me, 222 to 235, he at some point 
became so impressed with the words of verse 12 that are in our reading tonight, he had those words inscribed on the walls of each room in his palace. And he had the artist use gold to do it. And so we have the golden rule in verse 12. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, it should grab our attention that a Roman emperor could be attracted to the wisdom and the beauty of Jesus' teaching, but at the same time not be attracted to Jesus as the only Lord and Savior of men. That is something to take notice of because it is so, so very common, especially with this golden rule. Men are attracted to this golden rule. It has received praise all over the world from those who would never be caught praising the Savior. Many men praise this rule who do not worship Christ the Lord. And why is that? Because the attraction of a man like Severus is an attraction to the law of Christ, but not to the gospel of Christ. And this helps us in a way understand what verse 12 is about. Verse 12 is not laying out the way to salvation. Men do not enter the salvation of God by trying hard to keep the golden rule. Faith in God's Son is the only way to salvation. Faith in Christ crucified and Christ raised for sinners is salvation. Verse 12, then, is laying out the way those who have already experienced this salvation will now walk. It is the way of love. It is the way of the saved, not the way to be saved, okay? It is the way of life for those who have experienced the mercies of God in Jesus Christ. Verse 12 is law, not gospel. In fact, the end of that verse even states that plainly, doesn't it? This rule is the law which is now welcomed with open arms by those who have experienced the gospel and they strive to keep this rule. The kingdom of Jesus Christ will not accept a man who wants to keep a philosophy of life that says, do unto others as they have done unto you. The kingdom of God accepts no such men who want to keep that rule. Or get what I can from others before they get what they can from me. The kingdom of God will not accept any men who want to cling to that rule because that is just a sophisticated way of saying I want to keep my sin. Men who cling to those rules do not know the mercies of God in Christ. Revenge, resentment, retaliation are not rules in Christ's kingdom. They are not the law of God. Remember what Jesus said earlier in this very Sermon on the Mount. Back at its beginning, 539, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. 
If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. If your philosophy of life is always to even things out, to get back at those who got you or to beat them before they beat you, if that's your philosophy of life, if that's your rule, you need to know that you are rejecting the ministry and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not come into the world to get back at you. Even the lawless men of Jerusalem who crucified him, he did not rise from the dead to come and get back at them. We're learning that in the book of Acts. He came back to them with forgiveness and mercy and salvation. He came to them to deliver them from their sins and their bondage to that perverse exaltation of the self, which we are all in bondage to until we are bound to Jesus Christ through the Spirit. Jesus came to them to bring them into the liberty of the spirit-born children of God, which is to love God and love neighbor freely from the heart in righteousness without fear. That is the liberty of the child of God, to love freely without fear, righteousness. That's why Jesus has come to save us. Christ's rule for all relationships has then become a beautiful thing to the soul that has been saved by this love. We now recognize in his rule the kindness of his own free, uncoerced, unconquerable love toward us. We recognize that in this rule, don't we? Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Do you want others to lend to you when you are in need? Then lend to them when they are in need. Don't wait until you're in need to lend. Lend to them now when they're in need because you want them to lend to you when you're in need. Don't wait till it's a reciprocity. Do it now because of the word of God. Do you want others to slander you and diminish your reputation? Anybody? Then don't slander them. Don't diminish their reputation. Do you want others to misinterpret you? Then don't misinterpret them. Do you want others to use you and take advantage of you by charging you a higher price for a commodity when you are in desperate need? Then don't take advantage of them. And don't charge them a high price for a commodity. A man in Boston 300 years ago was disciplined by his session for doing that very thing. Do you want others to be easily offended by things you say? Then don't be easily offended by things they say. Do you want others to curse you and disrespect you? Then don't curse them. Don't disrespect them. Do you want to be forgiven by others without needing to purchase their forgiveness 
by praising them and honoring them? Then be quick and be early to forgive them before they think they have to praise you and grovel before you. Do you want to be used? Do you want to be manipulated? Do you want to be tricked? Do you want to be cheated? Then don't use, manipulate, trick, or cheat others. Anything you think would be evil done to you would be an evil thing if done by you. The Lord has given you such a light right inside of your own ambitions, right inside of your own wants, and he will judge every man because every man's desires for himself is a testimony. And for long life, it's a long testimony of what we think a human being should be treated like. And if we haven't treated others in the same manner, we will prove ourselves frauds. And it won't be a fault in our religion. It will be a fault in us. If we are tempted now to be silly and start imagining things to our own advantage, our text ends with the law and the prophets. Law and the prophets always remind us that we are not free to start to make up things. As some cheeky some, somebody might say, well, I want my neighbor to get me drunk, so I'm going to go get him drunk. Don't forget, this is inscripturated in the word of God. It takes us by the hand and teaches us how to think about what we believe is right and good. Now, the kingdom of Christ does not just require the negative rule, which is do not do the evil to others you do not want done to yourself. That's the negative rule. The kingdom of Jesus Christ doesn't just require that. The kingdom of God is even more demanding. It requires the positive rule. Do to others the good you would have them do unto you. Meaning do good to others not because you expect others to do good to you. Do it without confidence of reciprocity. Do it without regard to what they might do. That is not the way to sort this out. Do it rather with regard to what you wish them to do to you. Start with yourself, Martin Lloyd-Jones said. Start with you. What do you want? And there's a world of wisdom and light in that. Only by this rule will you be able to go on further and love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Richard Steele, a 17th century Puritan who preached 20 sermons to farmers, everything in each of these sermons was about the farmer's life. When he took up this text and crafted a sermon around it for the farmers, he had something very provocative to say. He said, if you do as much as the golden rule, you have a pagan's morality. But if you can't even do this, how can you go on to have a gospel morality and love your enemies? The reason he said that is because this is law. Even the pagans are attracted to it and see its reasonableness and its fairness. 
Paul called it in Galatians, the elementary things of the world. The good things we would like done to us, they must be the good thing done by us. Do you want people to sell things to you with disclosure of the defects and a fair price? Then sell things to them by disclosing the defects and assigning a fair price. How do you want others thinking about you when they are at home and your name enters their head? Now, I think it's very possible that we don't think about too many people when we're at home. I've often told people as a pastor who's maybe doing some curbside counseling, don't worry about what other people are thinking about you. The good news is they're probably not even thinking about you. But how do you want people to think about you when your name does enter their head? You want them to think lightly and mercifully and sympathetically of all your faults because they see your faults better than you see them. And you want them to think seriously and with gratitude about all your graces. That's how you should think about them. Exact same way. Now, if you say to me, I don't care how they think about me, then I would ask you, well, do you care about how Jesus thinks about you? Do you care how Jesus thinks about your neighbor? So verse 12, then, is the golden rule of love for all who have entered the kingdom of Jesus Christ. When our Lord started this sermon, he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, Matthew 5, 17. Now, nearing the end of the sermon, he says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That right there, that connection between 5.17 and 7.12 is why some commentators think our Lord is now summarizing the Sermon on the Mount. Christ is showing us in these two expressions, 5.17 and 7.12, that he did not come to relax the moral law of the Ten Commandments. If anything, he has made the law more clear in its true weight. But he has also made men new creatures. By his blood, by his spirit, he has forgiven our sins and he has broken the dominion of corruption in us. By the Holy Spirit, the law is now in our minds. By the Holy Spirit, the law is now written on our hearts. True Christians now love others as well as we love ourselves. In this, the law is fulfilled in us, Paul says. Paul says that in Romans 13. This is an honor of grace to the redeemed, that the law is being fulfilled in us because we have been made new creatures and the whole weight of the law has been uncluttered from the errors of the Pharisees. Now, the law is fulfilled, of course, not in a perfectionist kind of way, but it is fulfilled in a way that is true to the terms of the new covenant. 
Now this brings us to verse 13 and verse 14. The connection between these two verses and verse 12 is the connection between the difficulty of a journey and the quality of the destination. Verse 12 is the journey. Verse 12, verse 13 and 14 is a discussion about the destination. Jesus has set before us in verses 13 and 14 two roads. One is wide and easy, but it is the road to destruction, damnation, eternal torment in our sins under the wrath of God. The other road is narrow. It is hard, but it is the road to life, heaven, everlasting blessedness in the company of God, saints, and angels. So the hard road has a wonderful destination. The easy road has a dreadful destination. So Jesus is saying those who will live under the rule of verse 12 will experience many difficulties. First, they will have entered through the narrow gate, meaning they will have purposely chosen to live for Christ. They are not looking at the Christian life from the outside anymore. They are no longer admirers of the Christian life, chin strokers, contemplators, saying how beautiful the Christian life is. Oh, look at that golden rule they have in that Christian religion. No, those who have entered through the narrow gate have purposely chosen to live for Christ, not on the outside anymore. They have entered through the narrow gate. They have come to Christ for salvation. They do not want to cling and keep their sins and their sinful philosophies of the world anymore. They will no more be like those nominal Christians who can say nice things about Christianity but never enter into it never take up their cross, never deny themselves, never follow Christ. Have you met folks like that? The contemplators. They admire the Christian faith, but they don't enter. They don't hear the command of Christ and obey it. But these... Those who have entered the narrow gate are not like that at all. These are the ones who know there is difficulty ahead, but they have chosen Christ anyway. They have heard the command of Christ to enter, and they have willingly entered. They know they have become a Christian. They know they are committed to the road. They know how hard it's going to be, and they know where it's going to end. Second, Jesus says in 13 and 14, they are unashamed of the difficult journey. They willingly enter this journey as pilgrims on a narrow and hard way. They had to come through a narrow gate, and now beyond it is not a broad way, but a continuance of the narrowness. So even though there will be loneliness, Jesus says, 
because only a few others will be on the same road. And even though there will be opposition because the way is hard, these still want to be with Christ more than they want to be with the world. They want the companionship of Christ, the blessing of Christ, the grace of Christ, the salvation of Christ. They want the honor and kingdom of Christ. That's why they are on this road. The difficulty of Christ's rule, the golden rule, does not scare them off at all. Why? Because they know this is the rule Christ gives to them and supports them under as he bears the yoke and lightens it for them. This is the rule that Christ gives them power to keep. They know this rule of love, in fact, is the law of liberty, as James might call it. It is the true freedom of the child of God to love God and love neighbor freely from the heart. They understand, those who have entered, they understand Christ gives them this rule not to condemn them under it, but to complete them by it, to conform them to the image of the Son for which they were predestined. So they don't regret the narrowness nor the hardness. Now, Jesus, of course, says there is another road, the broad road, the easy road, the road that leads to destruction, the road that is full and crowded with people. And because of that, this road gives to each who is on it the illusion of safety. It's a crowded road. Look at everybody's here. I'm not referring to you. Those on the Broadway say, look at all my friends. Look at all these important people, these well-read people, these valuable people. It gives them the illusion of safety. How can so many people be wrong? That is the great comfort question for those on the road, the broad road. It's their false gospel. It's the question that gives them a deceptive peace even while they march toward their destruction. They have told themselves that the way the world works is just fine and no one should bother much to escape it. As they look out all over all the rules of men and the philosophies of men, they say the rulers of this world are okay. The rules of this world are okay, which are do unto others as they have done unto you. That's okay. Get what you can from others before they get what they can from you. That's okay. Don't turn the other cheek. That's for saps. Yeah, don't do that. Don't pray for your enemies. That's for losers. Those on the broad road wrap themselves in these evil rules of men. And they say God won't judge them for this. They tell themselves that this is how men have to get by in this world. This is what we have to make do with in this world. God understands. God in heaven points to his son and says, I understand better than you know. I have sent my son to bear the judgment for your philosophies of life, your rules of men. 
They say God understands the little trickeries and the little cheating, the little cutting of corners, the little lie, the little gossip, the little overcharge, the little false weights and measures. God understands it all. He's, well, he's like us. He understands. And Jesus is a kindly fool to them because he would not allow himself a single one of their rules. Why wouldn't you give to others, beloved, the very thing that pleases you? Why wouldn't the rule of Christ be measured in your heart as true liberty in the kingdom of God? Why would you give to others the very thing you don't want anyone to give to you? The answer is quite simple, and this is what's happening on the broad, on the broad way. Those who do not like the rule of Christ have made themselves out to be something better than other people, haven't they? They are a god. They think of themselves as special and important and unique among men. They can't think of others. They can't bring themselves to think of others. They think of themselves It is true that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, but we do not love ourselves with clear eyes. We love ourselves as if we are alone in the world. We do not love self in a holy way. If we did, we would always see in ourselves the commonness that we have with other men. Instead, we are blind and we see ourselves as unique and as more significant than other men. No wonder Paul wrote to the Philippians and says, do not consider yourself more significant than others. So our Lord Jesus says, enter. He says enter because all men are already on a road. There is no neutral place between these two roads. There's no little park that's not the road. We are either on the broad way or we are on the narrow way. And we have entered willingly, deliberately, happily, regardless of the difficulties. We know that we are heading towards the destination. And how the Lord Jesus sweetens all of this difficulty by saying the destination is life. Who is the author of life? The Lord God. Those on the hard way end up in the blessedness of God's bosom forever in his heaven, eternal life. So, beloved, the Lord Jesus has set before us in this text tonight the big question for each of us. Is the rule of Christ liberty to us or bondage? Is the rule of Christ liberty to us or bondage? Is it liberty that we have never seen until we have seen Jesus Christ crucified and risen? Is it liberty to see that we now in Christ can love men freely and truly as we love ourselves and love God? Or is that bondage? 
The answer, of course, is testified by the life of the Savior. Let us pray. Father, we pray that we would not be ashamed or afraid of this rule. It is difficult. It is hard. It will be costly. It has been costly. But, Father, we pray that we would recognize it for what it is. It is indeed the true inheritance of the children of God to be so liberated from bondage to the rules of men, the cutthroat, self-first rules of earth, to be so liberated from them that we can rise and enter upon for the first time in Jesus Christ the true privilege of the children of God to be like your son in the covenant, to mimic him, to imitate him, and to truly love other men and love God freely from the heart by the Spirit because of the blood. Oh, Father, let us not believe the lies that say that this is not what men are for. You have created us for yourself, and we are restless until we find our rest in thee and in all thy love and rule. Oh, take us again, O Lord. Ravish our hearts with these truths. If any hearing this have been among the contemplators, those who have a measure of respect for the life of the Christian, but stand outside of it, have not entered upon it, find it too hard and not easy enough. Oh, gracious Lord Jesus, we pray that you would do for them what you have done right before us in this text. Set before them life and let their hearts sing like Christian and Pilgrim's Progress who ran across the fields to the narrow gate yelling, life, life, eternal life. Oh, Father, let this sing in us. Let us bear up under any hardship to follow Christ. In his name we pray, amen.